Welcome to the Agile Strategy Lab podcast. I'm Liz Nilsson, the Associate Director of the Lab at the University of North Alabama. We'll warn you right up front, this episode is a little different. Usually we talk about a tool or a technique, or at least a behavior. This time, we're delving into something much less identifiable, although we see its effects all around us. What is it that's going on when a person chooses to be part of a community? Why do we form communities? And how do they shape our thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors? And what happens when very different communities try to talk to one another? In this episode, you'll hear from Will Sampson. Will is Vice President of Strategic Growth and Change for INZET, a coaching and consulting firm in the Washington, D.C. area. So what would make a coach, someone who tends to work primarily with individuals, an expert on community? Will brings a very unconsultant kind of background to his work. He spent more than a decade living in an intentional community in Lexington, Kentucky, and his doctoral research focused on neo-monastic communities being formed by young post-evangelicals. Here's Will. So the topic is building community. I'm gonna be a little counterintuitive by starting, uh, to, by starting talking about individuals. And it's particularly counterintuitive because by training I'm a sociologist. But I feel like before we can delve into fostering civility by having these difficult dialogues, we need to understand the people in the dialogue. So I'm gonna throw out some ideas about what motivates people We'll try to understand how that relates to community and to civil dialogue. And then I'm gonna finish with a very, hopefully very practical example. So here's my theory. That seven, our humans have seven core desires. So we wanna be safe, to be seen, to be heard. We wanna contribute, speaking of human insight, we wanna matter, we wanna be loved, and we want to belong. So from these seven core desires, we get our stories and we make sense of the world with with the stories. So our stories are formed around these core desires, but it's also important to recognize that they are shaped by the gap that exists between our desires and reality. So if you've read Parker Palmer, um, people in education have usually picked up his Courage to Teach book, but Parker Palmer coined the phrase, the tragic gap. And he was using it specifically to talk about violence and how it springs from the space between how we believe the world should be ordered and how it is. But I think we can borrow his phrase and say that as humans, we have a tragic gap between our core desires and reality. So for example, we have a core desire to be safe, but perhaps we had adverse childhood experiences that threaten that sense of safety. And that space, that gap, um, it shapes and informs our stories. And so stories are important because our, our tribes are informed by stories and our tribes are also informed by that tragic gap we feel uh, between desires and reality. And in our tribes, it's our, it's our tribes that uh, teach us where we belong, they shape our discourse, and they also, frankly, shape what we think is worth fighting over. And so I'm using the term tribe loosely because it's a way for me to, to introduce the concept of religion, which we don't always talk about. But as a trained sociologist of religion, um, frankly, I think 
the word religion gets kind of a bum rap. So we use it to talk about the horrible things that religious people often do, and, that, and, and they are. But I think the word itself is a pretty great word. It actually comes from a French root, which means uh, to be bound together. Um, and so religion practiced right is what binds us together. It gives us uh, what I call the three Bs, belief, behavior, and belonging. So it tells us, it, it seeks, it tries to answer the question, what's true? What's worth believing? Um, and that's how we get our ideas about how to behave. Um, and frankly, if you want to know how this works, turn on the news probably right now. Because um, we're watching people behave publicly in ways that don't seem to connect to facts or data. And so our inclination to ask, well, don't they know? And frankly, here's where we have to admit that belief and knowledge are two different things. Because if we're humble, we have to admit that much, a lot of what we believe, a lot of what we think we know, I should say, is really belief. So if I asked you to explain the power grid, maybe some of you could, I couldn't, um, but I believe the light's gonna turn on when I flip the switch. Um, now an electrician probably could explain to me the power grid, but if I asked, an if I asked that same ele electrician, tell me, why we brown meat before we roast it. And tell me the chemistry behind that. Probably wouldn't know unless he happens to be a foodie as well. And if I asked that same chef, tell me how vaccines work. Probably wouldn't know. Maybe he could give me some basic idea. But, you know, we need all types of knowledge to make a modern society work. And it works when we all trust each other to play our part. So I said that religion gives us belief, gives us behavior, but it also gives us um, an idea of belonging. And it shouldn't surprise us that we belong to a group of people who believe and behave the way we do. And our places of belonging affirm these beliefs, these behaviors. They act as what we sometimes talk about as communities of interpretation, right? They tell us how to make sense of the world. And these places can be a church. They can be civic institutions. Um, our places of belonging are also formed around the common places we visit on social media. And whether we look to Fox News or MSNBC or some other place to know what's true. But belonging, belief, and behavior, the behavior that go along with it, it's all a dance, right? We're shaped by our communities, but we also in turn shape them. And so when we see public discourse, when we see these struggles in the public to understand how to, the world should be shaped, I think it's helpful to understand the whole chain at work. Yes, angry people are protesting, um, but it's only the gadflies, frankly, that, that protest alone. So whether people are proclaiming uh, that Black Lives Matter or demanding to stop the count, we recognize that these protesters are part of a community that reinforces their beliefs, their behaviors, and it's built around the stories each of us tell ourselves. And those stories spring from those core desires and from the tragic gap between the desires and our reality. So let me try to make this more practical because that's kind of theoretical. A few weeks ago, I was camping virtually with some dear friends. I was hosting a conversation about how we stay in loving relationship with friends and family who are making different political choices than us. And this had particular significance for this group because many of us were raised in conservative political and religious settings. So, for example, the religious community I grew up in wouldn't even let you serve in a leadership position if you had been divorced. 
But now we watched as those same people who told us we weren't allowed to smoke, drink, chew, or go with the girls that do, those same people were giving their full-throated support to someone who not only had a very public record of sin, but had the chutzpah to claim he had no need for forgiveness, even though acknowledging the need for forgiveness was the core tenant for entrance into the community. It's the gate pass. So the visceral reaction of all of us around the Zoom campfire was anger. But people were also able to express pain and sadness and disappointment. They were able to imagine a way forward that led to healing and not to contempt. They were able to do so because we had created and maintained a safe space for deep, focused conversation, which is the first skill in strategic doing. One person around the Zoom fire uh, led us through a guided meditation. I framed the conversation with appreciative questions that were particularly focused on helping people in the circle understand the decisions of their loved ones in the context of that person's core desires. This, I believe, is how we build movements that matter. This is how we foster civil dialogue, and this is how we change the world. I'm going to speak carefully here, but I believe too much of our efforts have been centered around changing the system. But as I used to tell my students when I taught my social movements class, the system will always take back what the culture has not granted. Let me repeat that. The system will always take back what the culture has not granted. And we've seen this in the last 50 years. In 1964 and 65, we passed two of the most important pieces of civil rights legislation in our nation's history. But today, literally today, on today's news, we can see voters whose rights are being actively disenfranchised. So how do we move forward? Well, I think one part of the solution is to create communities that address people's core desires. We can pass laws that make housing discrimination illegal, but that doesn't make certain people feel safe when confronting new neighbors of color, regardless of how illogical, immoral, and racist those fears might be. And as much of a fan as I am of religion, it would be a false reading of history to suggest that communities of faith, at least those in my tradition, have been reinforcing beliefs and behaviors that make the world more just and lead to civil dialogue. Too many Christians have led and continue to lead fights for inequality and diminishment of men and women made in the image of God. So what do we do with all this? Well, I'm going to suggest three ideas that we can unpack in the Q&A. First, we need to commit to the hard work of creating communities. This is Strategic Doing 101. We identify assets. We link and leverage them to identify new opportunities. Creating new communities is hard and it takes time. But it's the way, it, it's the way we can create conversation spaces that will bring us to genuine civil dialogue. Second, we need to change our view of time. A few years back, there was a popular book called The 40 Days of Purpose. Maybe you can change yourself in 40 days. I doubt it. I don't know if I can. But if you want to change the world, what we need is 40 years of purpose. I'm not suggesting we go slow, but recognize that we are in a marathon, not a sprint. And third, if we want to win big, we need to think small. 
for too many of us, our big easy is to elect the is to elect the leader of the free world and forever shape the future of democratic society. Well, what if we started with a book club? I don't mean to be overly simplistic, but the most important work we can be doing right now is to create what Mickey Scott Bay Jones called brave spaces. Spaces that are not perfect, but spaces that allow us to be vulnerable and to work side by side. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the lab and how we help organizations address complex challenges, find us at agilestrategylab.org. You can also email us through the website. Just look for the Contact Us button. See you next time.